Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Arun Agarwal, CEO of White Lotus Group, a real estate and healthcare private equity firm. A conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Arun is a former Wall Street investment banker of Prudential Securities who has primarily focused on healthcare and real estate initiatives. Arun began his own private equity firm in 2002, returning to Omaha, Nebraska, to set up a home base for White Lotus Group. The group, under the management of Arun, continues to facilitate projects within the real estate and healthcare markets with projects totaling over $1.5 billion. Arun is a graduate from the Wharton School of Finance at the University of Pennsylvania of 1998, where he was awarded the Wharton Award for Academic Achievement. Arun, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. I think the phrase and its context, private equity, conjures up all sorts of different uh, impressions in people's minds. So I just wanted to start there and ask, what is private equity? What, what is the business of private equity? It's writing on the backs of creative entrepreneurs. That's <laughs> basically what that is. No. <laughs> you know, private equity is, is, there's different strategies in which capital gets allocated to specific businesses. And in private equity, we're searching for, it, it typically seems like it's earlier stage, which it necessarily does not need to be, but private enterprises, companies that, that are not necessarily trading on the stock market that have uh, a liquid market or a secondary market in which shares can trade. So the risk profile becomes a little bit harder. Um, but private equity is a pretty broad term in terms of investing in a private enterprise. Um, I think the connotation, uh, I, you see it in, in a lot of succession planning. So uh, yeah, I'm a family business that doesn't have uh, a child or grandchild that wants to take over the business. I might have a succession plan to take over my 50-year-old family business, and I'm, I'm looking for a private equity investor to buy me out um, to... I'm investing in the new, you know, technology, you know, web 2.0, 3.0 type investment or uh, cryptocurrency, as we were just joking about earlier. So all, all of those, I mean, it's a very, very broad range of investing in a private enterprise. So you were sort of joking a little facetiously at the top there um, about riding on the backs of entrepreneurs, <laughs> which is funny, but, you know, that, that conjures all these great impressions of um, the avaricious private equity that's whipping business along. But it, it feels from what you're describing as if there's quite a high risk profile for private equity investors. So the returns need to, to meet that. And also it feels as if private equity is a way for money to enter markets where perhaps more cautious forms of investing don't, don't want to put their money. Is this accurate? 
I taught at Creighton finance class a couple of times. And in speaking to these students, one, one fact that kind of uh, something that was taught to all of us early on risk reward analysis. And I find that to be true today. Uh, and it's something so interesting. And it was something that uh, resonated back uh, and then specifically in teaching with these students that there is a risk reward analysis that we need to, to make. And with private equity, there is no secondary market that we're able to just you know, uniquely buy shares of Apple today and sell them tomorrow. In private equity, that illiquidity raises the risk profile generally. So there is an expectation that you should be rewarded for that illiquidity just naturally on its on the surface. But the risk profile of the investment, you know, really there's a wide swath of what that might be. Um, it might be investing in in a in a piece of real estate that is generate uh, stabilized, that's generating rents and creating an income. It might be it might be somebody's agricultural business that they've been in business for 30 years. They're just you know, aging out or in, at retirement age and and need you know a private equity investor to continue on the operation that might have been profitable for the last 30 years to all the way to the other spectrum a, a startup web technology company that's trying to disrupt something uh, in our mainstay and uh, and you're investing and and in that latter example your expectations or as an as an investor in something like that my expectations would be to have a reward commensurate with the level of risk and an unproven um, high capital, likely high capital uh, intensive operation. I associate you more and your bio affirms this with uh, real estate and also with healthcare. So I'm curious about both of those things, but real estate in particular is um, in terms of assets, a pretty illiquid one in the sense that it has a lifespan, a longevity, a sort of tangibility that perhaps um, in many instances is expected to last longer than the lives of the people you know, investing in it. We look at the buildings around us, right? And the built infrastructure. Where did that interest in real estate and, uh, and in healthcare too, where did those interests emerge from? I think you always go back to retrace your steps. I grew up in a healthcare family that had made some investments in real estate. Um, I thought, like so many other Indian families, I thought I was going to be a doctor, right? a doctor or you know, computer scientist or engineer or something like that. And uh, my path was no different, except that I had an older sister and a younger sister, both of which was opted into medicine. And ironically, my father said, go explore, go do something different. Um, but I always wanted to have uh, some closeness, some relevancy in, in conversation, at least with the family that, that was predominantly healthcare. So that's led me to grow up in a healthcare environment. And my, the periphery of the family, a lot are in healthcare, uncles, um, cousins, and whatnot are all, you know, in our physicians or clinicians in, in healthcare. Uh, but I had this real estate experience growing up as a child. And getting to rent apartments or build something, even a grade school, high school level, which was, a, was an interesting opportunity for entrepreneurship at a young age. And then I ended up, so father said, try not to, don't do healthcare. You know, you got sisters that are doing healthcare, go explore. And 
why not merge the two? So when I left university, I went to New York and I was an investment banker, predominantly in a healthcare space. But my specific specialty predominantly was hospital systems and physician clinics. So my job was to end long-term housing. So create um, the physical infrastructure for a cancer center in Tennessee to medical office buildings in Denver to uh, throughout the country or assisted or nursing home uh, development. So I had the, uh, the opportunity to merge two, two interests into one um, and to generate some type of speciality in the fine as whatever might be uh, in the finance space. So, uh, you know, after that moved back to Omaha with that, with that experience and was able to, was able to carry that on, which I've been very fortunate to do so. Let's continue talking about then real estate. So you mentioned some particular projects around the country that you were uh, involved in, but then you came back to Omaha and founded this business nearly two decades ago now, specifically here. I think many people in Omaha may know you, for example, as as the person behind Hotel Deco, because that's a, a very public facing commodity, as it were. But of course, you're so much more invested in different real estate projects than that. So Are you able to maybe give us a a case study or two to illustrate how this process works, how how your business works? Again, to go back into reverse, when we first got here, we had a healthcare specialty, and I had a father who was an orthopedic surgeon um, and had on the periphery extended family that were involved in healthcare. So we started doing ancillary services to physician practices. And what would be a great example is building an MRI facility, an imaging facility for a sports medicine clinic, uh, building a physical therapy office, and even running the operation. You know, who refers most often to a physical therapist, the orthopedic sports medicine surgeon who uh, you just fixed your ACL. And now I need to refer you to physical therapy for the next, you know, three, six months uh, to get recovery. Um, And so our job started there. It's just in that Nebraska, we have three predominant health networks and the centralization of healthcare has now gone into a lot more hospital centric, which makes it a little bit more challenging. At that point, we broadened our horizon and and started, and this is the entrepreneurial aspects of our business, which is let's start exploring different industry segments within the healthcare, within the real estate space. And so whether it was multifamily apartments, whether it was an office building or industrial building, uh, whether it was a hotel, Hotel Deco is a great example of an outward facing uh, project. And 
a couple of things. One, I'm, I have an affinity for architecture. So I like it's it's very beautiful to me, the look and feel, especially these the older historic buildings and how we how we look at those buildings. And, and they're just very, very beautiful. And the funny story about Deco was we purchased that. I'd never been inside the building. Never had been inside the building. I just liked the exterior. I loved the location. And we saw an opportunity based upon our understanding of the city. So it starts with our understanding of what's the city's both master plan vision and, and what do uh, community citizens, where do they go? Where do they work? Where do they travel? And, and what does that look like in our normal everyday lives? Now our job is to kind of find pockets of opportunities to pursue. And uh, we're much more of a generalist development firm. You know, we've done most of the food groups, the retail, the office, the, the apartments, and now we like specific locations. It's, you know, we're involved with North Downtown, um, soon to be involved with the Civic Auditorium. These are areas we, we do believe in a strong urban core. We think the urban core should be shrunk to an area of what our central business district is, you know, 16th East or 24th East and Cummings to Leavenworth, perhaps. And even that's, that's big. We're, and our job is to now figure out what demand exists and make sure that supply is built around it and, and try to bring some, some architectural design, some, some really cool and interesting concepts. Uh, we start to throw these flares into these projects, but yeah, I mean, so if you look at our, our uh, geography, at least within Omaha, it's kind of all over. It's West Dodge, it's downtown, it's North, it's South. Um, there's certain, there's so many interesting pockets of neighborhoods uh, in our market and um, to start to, ingrain yourself in, into each of those it tells a different story each time. So I'm curious then about how, how you make decisions, how you make these choices about where you're going to um, apply an analytical lens to, and then choose to invest in. You use the metaphor of food groups, but you talked about different industry categories of, of building need, like uh, you know, retail and the hotel and healthcare, for example. Uh, you talked about people's needs and community, and we'll certainly come back to community in, in a second. Um, understanding the city's vision. But then you also talked about geographies, specific locations in the city. And then there was also a hint of actually wanting to play a part in the vision of what a city could be as well. That's not a hint. We want to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it feels like that's a whole, a whole raft of decision-making criteria. Um, how are you making these choices and and maybe it's just that it's changed over time uh the the particular choice matrix but how do you choose what to invest in it's all of those things so it is a matrix of criteria now as we've kind of we've been really fortunate we've grown um our geography frankly outside of nebraska now so our geography's changed so a lot of this needs to present itself back to us, which is, uh, which is an interesting shift, I guess, for us is that now opportunities are presented. Um, it might be in the commercial agency space might be presenting, it might be government, it might be economic development, it might be chamber for that matter, are presenting unique opportunities, challenges that they might be having. And we need to vet whether or not we can solve them, um, whether or not we could participate in the solution of them. And, and, uh, listen, for us, it's, it's partly, are we the right firm to do that? Meaning there's a lot of great development entities and maybe there's somebody that's 
better than we are in a specific industry. And most surely there are. Um, but in this particular opportunity, are we the right firm for that? Is it something that we can develop in the foreseeable future? Does it meet the risk reward criteria, meaning for the, for the time energy uh, that we spend, is there going to be enough yield uh, to make it worthwhile? I still want to make sure that we sustain employment, overhead, everything like that. So a whole host, sustainability is, an, is another big one for us. And our mentality, and I tell this repeatedly to our team here, we invest as if we're going to own it forever. So we're not a merchant development firm. We're not building something with the intention of selling it tomorrow. We're, we're building it with the hope that it uh, outlives our own personal existence. So we want to own things forever. Um, we, we want to have a collection of these opportunities. And, and so that goes a long way in our decision making. If it's something, uh, it's a 10-year fix or it's something like that, that's probably not in our wheelhouse. It's not our interest. It's perpetual. It's sustainable. It's something that we can see out into the future. Take the good and bad There's a simple kind of beauty In between happy and sad But in reality I've got everything I'll ever want And much more than I'll Such a tiny spark It's turned into a wild flame And chased away the dark Now our shadows grow Along a million memories And so much open road Seconds become moments And these moments build a life Now just look at us So let's turn then to that idea of community building and being a part of something bigger. So the built infrastructure is an integral and important component of community. But when I say the word community and when other people think about community, it conjures so much more. And so I'm wondering, given the important role that you and your business play in what we think of as community, how do you think about what community is? That's a great question. I think, you know, you have one version of how you describe Omaha today, and you have one vision or dream that you might have of what we can evolve to be. We're looking at both at the same time, and more or less our business is wrapped around what's the journey between <laughs> What's the bridge and what role can we play in that? So when I think about Omaha, I think about uh, people first, like how do we, how do we grow population? Um, that's a big one. Um, I'm hearing from a lot of business owners, labor challenges, uh, people challenges, you know, we, you know, brain drain is a, is a common phrase that we hear about 
um, in, in Nebraska, we produce such great graduates from great university systems, but then, you know, people are going to the coast. We do have a great community and it's one that should be marketed. And I know that the chamber is playing such an active role in marketing our community. Um, but that's a message that we need to get out there repeatedly, because I think the more people that we get into our community, the more ideas, the more entrepreneurship, the more energy, the more services that we will need. And, and it just, it makes everything go more and better. I'm hopeful. Um, so that, that's a big one, you know, so how do we, what's our role in, in playing for that? You know, the, the, the entrepreneurial side, the new job creation, that some of these technology firms, the builder trends, the flywheel, some of these companies that are producing high, high levels of new jobs, the toast that's moved here, can that attract the workforce and bring them um, to our community? I think those are excellent examples. There's other, other industries. I, I think what UNMC is doing and Creighton's doing on the research side is going to be uh, exciting on the healthcare. And certainly that's something that's going to be catalytic for us. You know, roles that White Lotus has played is, you know, is a lot of that. How are we providing the housing downtown? How are we providing services? So it's not just bringing the San Francisco new graduate to Omaha. They're here because have we created an environment. And it was funny, the chamber in, in recruiting Toast had asked me and, and I had brought in a friend and our job wasn't necessarily just to show infrastructure for Toast itself. It was also to take the team out into the community, whether it was Benson or Old Market or something, to show them that Omaha has these broad appeals to that workforce. Because it's not just about going to work. It's also, what am I doing before work, after work? Where am I living? And what's the education environment? And Omaha does have a lot to offer there. Um, on the flip side, you know, we live dead center in the center of this country. Um, and so we think about right now, our distribution warehousing and uh, e-commerce um, is such, there's such an opportunity in our opinion of playing a more significant role for this fulfillment distribution. Last mile is obviously community driven, um, but can we play a regional solution um, or a national one for that matter? Uh, in that space. And, you know, our company is playing a role in that. And so that's been, it's been fun. So there's a lot of different case studies, um, I think, in which, uh, in which that exists. What is the tension, the push and pull between private and public? And so what I'm thinking about here are those communities that sort of organically evolve because it's, it's sort of driven by people that live in these communities and private interests that see opportunities for business and growth, but but it's it, it's a vision that's being brought to a place, not emerging from a place. Speaking specifically about Omaha, um, you talked earlier about the city's you know master plan, the master vision, and as a new immigrant to the city, having moved here you know within the last two decades, I don't necessarily have a strong sense that the city itself has a really clear vision of what Omaha could be. It feels as if it's emerged either organically or through private partnerships. So I'm just wondering how, how you're thinking about that aspect of the community side of things from a people perspective being brought into this vision-making component. Yeah, I, I, and I don't disagree with you. There's private enterprise. That's a little bit of the challenge. I, I alluded to the um, – I'm a part of the Urban Core Committee, uh, so we're, we're planning and and – 
I'm not shy to say that our definition of the urban core is huge. It goes all the way to Saddle Creek. It goes all the way south to Leavenworth. It goes all the way beyond. I mean, it's a huge swath of area. And for us to uh, see success, I mean, it's just too much. It's too much. And there's too much of this push-pull tug of war that we'll have in different pockets of the city rather than being you know, pretty focused. And that, that's, that is an ongoing debate is how do we become more focused? I mean, the city and private philanthropists are, are contributing to the riverfront. I mean, there's going to be a significant investment made at what is now called the riverfront. And uh, <laughs> what can we do to continue to foster uh, success there? Because to build it and not have people utilize it would, would be a miss for us. And so we need to do our part to make sure that private enterprise and, and, and otherwise are utilizing that kind of that general area. Um, but, and that is an ongoing issue. I, I'm not going to deny it. There's not an, there's not an eloquent way to say it's, Oh, it's going perfectly. It's, you know, it's, you're going to have to crack some eggs so to speak, to figure out what what sticks or doesn't stick. For us, I mean, we can't control, um, we can't control the macro environment. You asked for a couple of case studies. Um, 30 Metro, Metro Community College, one of our, our largest post-secondary education institution or, or second largest, um, has a beautiful main campus on in North Omaha on the Fort Campus. And in looking at their master plan, they provide virtually no housing to students. Two-thirds of the two-thirds of the student base was in the workforce. So what was our role? We found a site across the street. Frankly, somebody at the city and chamber had brought the opportunity or suggested the opportunity. And we built an affordable workforce housing solution that provided healthcare to the student base. They were also one of the larger CNA, MA, you know, healthcare programs with no real student health, no real uh, housing. And we provided an opportunity to build privately a solution that meets that. Safe to say that, I mean, it's, it's occupied and we go to the site. It's now uh, the state of Nebraska has put an economic development office that's focused on North Omaha there. We did a project on 56th in Ames, which, which was one of the sites where Walmart was considering. Clearly, unemployment in North Omaha is higher than the average throughout the city. We had a goal internally within White Lotus Group is how can we create something that's going to replicate the amount of jobs that Walmart would have produced if there. Granted, Walmart went to 50th Street, and I think it was 200 some odd jobs. And we've now built a, a three building kind of campus which we've surpassed the 200 plus job mark and actually put in operations, Heartland Workforce Solutions, a great enterprise, rest care and other county offices that provide services for job training and job placement. I mean, what, a, what an incredibly catalytic use for that specific area that we think is a great case study for producing employment and jobs and, and labor. Um, and, and I think those are two great examples of how we might be able to contribute. Now, is that a whole district? Is that a whole, uh, is that constitute North Omaha? Of course not. It's a small percentage in the grand scheme of what needs to happen, what should happen. And certainly there's other organizations, 75 North and 
uh, Willie Barney and, and, and some of their groups that are, that are contributing um, equally or more in that, in that regard. just making me think about the ethical and and moral obligations that that any business has and perhaps that maybe you think of for your business. And and I'm wondering if you think that you do have some kind of moral and ethical obligation to whether it's the specific local community or or the broader city or region as a whole. And if so, what is that ethical obligation? I don't want to romanticize something. Um, sitting in this seat as the CEO of White Lotus Group. Philosophically, we believe that doing community good and maximizing profit need not be mutually exclusive. You could also say this in a different way. There's a need and I'm helping meet the need. And uh, we have to generate an income in doing so. And I don't think that we should be begrudging folks that might make an income by satisfying a demand. We just look at it with a with a broader toolkit, if you will. Um, so if I'm if we're doing an affordable housing or a workforce housing development, of course there's a there's a significant need throughout the country. Seven million units are needed, and there's nothing that we're going to be able to do to satisfy this global need. But we can do our part in providing a solution. But I, we need to do that in a sustainable way, which means. Yeah, I'm not talking about just energy uh, and lead when talking about sustainability. I'm talking about being sustainable as an operation and, and it generate an income. And yeah, I think that's that's part of our job is to make sure that this is it is a perpetual solution for the community, frankly, and that it's meeting a community need is part of that business plan. And again, I don't want to romanticize that. That's uh, is job is job creation, job placement a need. In North Omaha, yes. Is quality housing a need? Yes. Do I think, you know, as Omaha in the central business district, are we trying to attract more businesses to move to the central business district? Yes. It's flip-flop. There used to be 48,000 jobs downtown with 25,000 parking spaces. Now there's 40 plus thousand and 25,000 people working. And what do we need to do to attract businesses? That's a challenge in our experience on building office buildings. The first thing a lot of uh, decision makers do is do a heat map of where their employees live to decide where their operations should be. Central Business District is a little bit th- that exception, especially the, the larger ones. So I was happy to see Kiwit move downtown. Um, 
So can we do as a strategy, can we encourage more people living downtown so that more of the workforce demand makes it easier to encourage operations and businesses and entrepreneurs to move into our central business district? And if that can happen, fantastic. And, and if we can be a part of the infrastructure to build that, fantastic. That's, that's our goal, frankly. That's what we want. So tired of the same old lines we rehearse and rhyme, but don't believe. Ain't it time that we speak our minds and just realize we're meant to be? Say you want to and we'll leave tonight. Say the word, it's up. How did you, as CEO of White Lotus Group, uh, navigate the business and and the business meaning to your culture and your people through the pandemic? And how have the implications of the pandemic changed your um, the, the factors you think about now as you're thinking about the business post-pandemic? We were lucky uh, in the sense that in our senior leadership, we had more cautious and we had the other spectrum, which was, you know, it's just the flu. <laughs> so we, I, I had both to navigate and in one side, you're getting articles thrown out to the internet system and it's graphs showing, you know, COVID deaths or COVID infections. And the other side saying, you know, this, according to CDC, your, you know, data points of some other completely uh, unheard of websites combating this. So I was watching this. And what it, it dawned on us very early, we are not the physician, so we really can't opine about it. So a couple of things, we had to navigate who's going to be our data, who's going to be our, uh, what websites, what experts are we going to yield to, and the rest have to go away from noise standpoint. So whether it was the CDC, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Douglas County Health, um, you know, Dr. Poor, she did a fantastic job, I thought, um, and UNMC. Uh, so those became our authorities, if you will, and everything else had to go away. So no more graphs from some, you know, uh, obscure websites. But what second thing that we, I, that we realized was it's, again, it's not about the infection yet. It's about the anxiety that it was causing and that everybody became very, very nervous, nervous for their children, nervous for themselves, nervous for their community. And so how do we quell that anxiety? The disparity in everybody's take on how to handle the pandemic at least elicited the conversation very early on. So three things, we created a three-tier system. If these things happen, we would do this professionally, meaning how we would manage the office environment, how we would manage staffing, potentially furloughing. Um, and we had three tiers of that, you know, immediate, which was day one, we ended up having to implement and we had a tier two and a tier three, and a tier three was a lot more apocalyptic uh, in nature. The second thing was how did we quell the anxiety, which was the which to me was the bigger issue. We ended up hiring a physician, an infectious disease physician from Chicago. I said it can't be a relative, can't be somebody that we know. It needs to be independent. 
I don't want them to be coached. I do want them to understand that what's the purpose is, what is COVID? How do we mitigate it? How does that work in the, in the workforce? What are best practices? And we had a 45 minute all company Zoom. And I would say 70% of our workforce was on that Zoom, which I was, which was a lot higher than I was expecting. Um, and she, and this position gave it, you know, she was a national spokesperson for COVID uh, from Chicago. And she gave a 15, 20 minute kind of presentation about COVID in general. And then we did 40 minutes of question and answers. And that was, that in particular quelled a lot of the anxiety. And she was very, con- she was a conservative physician on how it's handled. We, again, we did not have any coaching uh, pre or, uh, or post. And I was very thankful because the level of anxiety quelled immediately. And I thought just knowledge is power, right? Knowledge is power. And so um, that expert to explain things, like you don't need to have the Lysol thing, soap and water can do can serve as a disinfectant for things. Um, you need to do this, the type of mask, the questions that people were asking. Again, so it made my heart flutter on how much anxiety people were holding on to Anyways, the, the long short is that resonated with folks and, and we were able, we did have to implement a tier one. Clearly we had certain operations, bars, restaurants, hotels that were suffering. Um, and now going forward, I mean, a couple of things, we have to envision a world past the pandemic, but we also have to recognize that, yeah, is there a possibility that uh, another infectious disease that's, you know, it's infectious disease, cyber attack. These are the top, you know, nuclear warfare, these types of three you know, apocalyptic type situations. And, um, and we are thoughtful. It, it does come out in our design. It does come out in um, how we think about workflow. Do we create an intern and exit separately on certain businesses? So for the Department of Motor Vehicles, we have an inter doorway, we have an exit doorway. So it's all one way. Again, these are small mitigants, but it, it has influenced design for us. And it has uh, just hygiene in general. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing for folks, but, um, you know, washing your hands, if, if that became a mantra, that's, uh, I was embarrassed that that was uniquely to the pandemic for some folks, <laughs> but it is, it, you know, I did not realize how much we do touch our eye when, when that was brought up, like, holy smokes, we do touch our eyes and didn't realize that that was a thing. Um, and again, it's reflected in our design, you know, for an office layout, you know, we might be staggering the workstations. It's also influenced how we think about the workplace. So, you know, we're very fortunate where our office environment is, but we are trying to bring in more services within our space so that I don't have to have the workforce leave. So our environment is a little bit more homey as a result of that. So more stocking in the break room, more food brought in, uh, it increases productivity and increases unity and, um, and it also mitigates, you know, people going out and bringing 4,000 worth of people, worth of germs back to the office. If that's, if that's a thing, I don't know. And then how have your um, investment decisions shifted as you, as you look long-term 
are you thinking why invest in the same way, for example, in an office building when uh, maybe housing with uh, live work space within it is a much more necessary future use of the built environment? I'm probably the contrarian here. Um, I think it's easy to say, you know, this remote work environment, the Zoom environment, this hybrid or work from home works when you're furloughing and talking about reducing workforce. But you you talk about some of these hyper employers, um, every business we've talked to needs people. And it's really hard to build culture remotely. I don't know how you would onboard remotely um, and build the same culture and team environment. The here and now of a conversation, a question, the cooler talk, the the go to lunch uh, experience, all of those builds human relations, um, which are vital to building a very integrated workforce, at least in the leadership. And so uh, the office environment, I'm certainly we are the contrarian. We're investing more. We're building two office buildings right now um, and, and happy to do so. Um, so I'm, again, is lease up and absorption a little bit riskier? Yes, it is. You know, hospitality is going to be unique uh, in how that comes back. I think it snaps back in the short term. And again, this fortunately and unfortunately allows us to get to the meat of a conversation um, that maybe I don't have to fly or come and see. I don't think it ever replaces the, the handshake, the hug, the, the face-to-face. So hospitality might have things to think about um, and you know, it needs to position itself differently. I think a bigger thing is you know, online everything, right? So uh, your your trip to the retail store is now scary on what Amazon and Walmart and some of these stores. I think that's a scarier experience. Somebody was telling me that Amazon and Walmart will be number one and two in the grocery market. So, I mean, thinking about that and if, if they're ex- they're perfecting the delivery and the logistics side of their business, and, and they certainly have come a long way over the last five years, um, you know, the need to ever leave your house is kind of a scary proposition. So how do retailers build an experience uh, while shopping? That's a bigger risk on a certain asset class is that online kind of scenario, but that's burgeoning this huge distribution and e-commerce warehousing business as a result of that. So where we've shifted is in the distribution side, because the retail might, uh, is going to shrink, your store inventory is going to shrink, distribution and warehousing will grow. So you have Indian heritage as a family context, and I'm wondering how 
that heritage informs or influences you in any way in terms of your life and your professional choices. Absolutely. I think everything in our history, in our origin, shapes us going forward. It certainly has influence. Um, you know, on lectures that I've ever given, um, and as cheesy as it might sound, my number one asset, my number two asset, my top three assets is my family structure, is my family unity and, and the origins and heritage that's come with it. That fabric is just like I described the office environment and how we all need to collaborate and work together and build a relationship. Uh, my relationship um, there is very, very significant to us. And I'll tell you, you know, I described two sisters that are plastic surgeons in Chicago, their husbands, my brother-in-laws are two physician surgeons in Chicago. And, uh, you know, so I'm the black sheep of this, uh, of this household. And um, I'll tell you, because we're so close, because we talk, uh, my risk tolerance goes precipitously higher because I know they've got my back and I've got their back, right? So again, my risk pool I don't make decisions just by myself. I'm, I'm constantly, I have a sibling that will call me between surgeries because she's got five minutes to kill and she doesn't know who else to call probably. And, uh, or on a, a long commute, if you will, I seem to be, that's when I get the phone calls is hey, I'm on a long commute. Talk to me, what's going on? You know, how, how are we having it? But certainly that uh, the family unity has uh, allowed us to make uh, some might deem to be riskier investments, but really it's just, we, we, we approach everything in a team format and everything seems safer with a team that you can count on. I think that does come with the, with the upbringing and the, and the heritage. And my goal is to keep that team, you know, trudging along as long as we possibly can. And that's, that's certainly the intent. And so we already have the next generation of nephews and nieces and hopefully, you know, God willing our own children, but that's, uh, uh, that's an exciting, it's exciting to see. And it's certainly top 2% of reason for any success that we've had, certainly. Naming is always much harder than people think. And I think reflective of uh, sometimes interesting, sometimes deep, sometimes just surprising reasons and drivers. Um, so why White Lotus Group? So Lotus is a flower of the gods and white is a very pure flower that you get to grow into something that's beautiful. And we always talk about creativity very similarly to the way that we talk about sustainability. It's not, we're not talking about the energy of the R value necessarily. And same thing with creativity. It might not be, it, it does not just need to be the aesthetic. It can also be our approach. It can be our impact. It can be a lot of different things. And so starting with this very clean, pure flower of the gods that we get to you get to grow something and shape it um, was part of the kind of that nomenclature and, and um, it's resonated. So it's, we're kind of having fun with it. My guest today has been Arun Agarwal, CEO of White Lotus Group, a real estate and healthcare private equity firm. Arun, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. I've, I've really appreciated the conversation. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, Stuart. Great to talk to you. Hopefully we get to see each other in person one of these days. Do you want to walk and go grab ice cream from the store? It's a mile away. No big deal. 
<laughs> Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.